And this is She Said, She Said. Today, we're here with Gloria Dittis. She is the chairman of Story Partners. Gloria, you've also been dubbed the nation's first public affairs maven. Let's start with what is Story Partners? Well, we're a public affairs firm, and we help corporations and organizations navigate through issues that impact their bottom line. So if a company is getting overregulated or people, you know, legislatures are considering legislation that, that impacts them in an unfavorable way, we try to influence the echo chamber. So the conversation about what's important to the company, why legislators or regulators should consider uh, the impact that those laws or regulations will have on the company, on their employees, on their shareholders, on their stakeholders, on the communities in which they operate, um, and take those things into account when they're making big decisions that are going to influence the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So you refer to yourself as chairman, which might be a little surprising to people. Why chairman and not chair or chairwoman or some other title? Well, I guess I could call myself chair, but I think that just sort of cuts it out. And I think I'm equal to any man in the job. So, you know, why not chairman? Gloria, you've been dubbed the nation's first public affairs maven in tech for technology, right? How did that come about? I started Dittus Communications in 1993, and our first client um, was a was a, an electricity company. But the second client um, was the Business Software Alliance, and so we started focusing on copyright and and copyright protection and trademark protection, which was very important to the technology industry early in the in, back in the day. Um, and by 1996. We had been retained by a group of hardware and software companies um, led by Intel uh, to um, fight the telephone companies who were trying to increase internet access fees on, uh, you know, on a burgeoning industry. And this was before people had desktops. Um, it was before computers were connected in offices. And we launched the first digital viral campaign, grassroots campaign, which actually shut down the FCC's servers by sending 800,000 emails calling on the FCC not to increase internet access fees. Um, and the FCC then called our client who was working at Intel at the time and said, you've got to stop this. They're crashing our servers. And they said, well, the only way we're going to stop it is if the FCC announces they're not going to increase internet access fees. Wow. Um, because without that, you know, we were not going to stop a viral digital campaign. And it was the first one ever launched in the in the United States, the first one ever launched in the world. Um, and so our, our technology public policy practice really had roots in the very early days of the industry. So, Gloria, when you think about your business, Story Partners, what makes it different? There's a lot of public affairs firms at this point in a place like Washington, D.C. What's unique about Story Partners? You know, what we've tried to do is combine um, sort of old school and new school. Um, I, I'm clearly a bit of the old school because I'm older and I've been around a long time. And when I first started uh, in the public relations business, we used to have to messenger press releases around to two and three hundred reporters in the Washington uh, in, in the Washington community. Um, and I'll never forget the first time I got a phone call from a journalist who said, excuse me, could you fax that to me? And, you know. <laughs> The fax was down in the 
printing office on the three floors away from my office and I didn't know if we could actually do that so um, it's really you know the business has changed a lot so when we started story uh, we brought in a, a, a lot of you know young um, folks who were very you know adept at social media um, it, it you know they were millennials who had grown up in you know in in, in that environment um, and we coupled them with senior strategists who had been around the block and and knew what was really going to make a, a, a legislator or a regulator um, listen um, because those folks more than often than not are more on my side of the ledger than they are on the millennial side of the ledger so by combining Meaning the, they're a little more experienced they're a little yes they're a little more experienced um so um by combining both of those i think we you know sort of hit the ball out of the park you've been in this business for more than 30 years so you've you've seen a lot you have a ton of experience what drew you to this business in the first place like how did you get your start well i started in in georgia and i happened to be friends with a gentleman who was running for Georgia State Senate. He didn't really need a full-time media person, but he sort of drafted me as someone in the campaign that would talk to local media on his behalf and help arrange interviews. And this was right after college? It was right after college. Um, actually, it was right in college. I was a, I was a senior in college. Uh, so I started doing that, and I got involved in uh, sort of we, what we called kitty politics. One thing led to another, and I moved to Washington to answer phones in the, in the United States Senate. That was the beginning of the career. You know, I put my hand up um, as any young person who has ambition. When I, I saw the press secretary who worked in the senator's office and they needed help, and I would put my hand up and offer to help and offer to help, you know, do anything, whether it was stuffing envelopes or um, helping them record a radio actuality. I just I just put my hand up and offered to help. And so that got me a, a, a lot of exposure and I was investing time in their success. And so they started investing time in my success. Yeah. So how did you get from there to starting what was Didis Communications, um, which ultimately you grew into a very successful business and sold? But how, how, what was the trajectory? Because you didn't go from being a press secretary on the Hill to starting your own business. So what was the trajectory? How did you get there? Well, when I was coming up, like most young women who were, you know, in the workforce, you had to come up on the administrative side. So I started out answering phones in the Senate. Um, after I left the Senate, I went to work downtown for Exxon Corporation and went to work for a man who had been the head energy reporter for the New York Times. And he was really looking for a secretary who could take dictation and make his lunch reservations and his flight reservations. And I couldn't take dictation, but I figured out how to have my own shorthand. I just wrote words without vowels, and I had to go back and figure out what they meant. <laughs> I told him that I would do that if he would teach me the business of public relations. And true to his word, he was a great mentor. And I would make lunch reservations with, you know, Bill and some fabulously well-known reporter. And I, I would ask him, you know, can I go to lunch with you? And oftentimes he would take me and he sort of allowed me to follow him around like a little puppy. And I just soaked up everything I could learn. And when we would have a crisis in the office, I would watch how he handled it. And after a couple of years of, of working for him, I realized I was going to have to make a move because there was not a place for me in, in the Washington office uh, at a professional level. So I told him that I was 
thinking about making move and I thought it was time and he said don't do anything till I get back because he was on travel at the time and uh, took me to lunch and said now why do you want to do this and I explained my rationale he said well I'll help you he said you'll get a better job if I help you than you will if you go out on your own and he introduced me to a a gentleman who was rebuilding the public relations department at the Edison Electric Institute which is the trade association for electric utilities Mm -hmm. Um, and I happened on the first day on the job to be put on a team that was focused on relicensing hydroelectric facilities. Um, and it, it might sound boring, and it and it was, but um, <laughs> the freshman congressman at the time uh, was a, a young man from Alabama named Richard Shelby, who you eventually worked that? for in the Senate. <laughs> And um, I met a gentleman who was part of that team whose company had a real interest in that. His name was Julian Smith. And many years later, when I was thinking about starting out on my own, I happened to have lunch with him and told him I was thinking about it. And two weeks later, he faxed me a contract. It was a two-year contract to to consult with Alabama Power, not not for a lot of money, but um, it was for two solid years. And it had a blank, uh, the name for the company. Company. And I'm like, what is this? Because he faxed it to me. And I called him, I'm like, what is this? And he said, well, you said you were you wanted to start your own company, and we've been part of a team for about four years. I want to one day be able to say I'm your first client. So um, I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? He said, I don't know. Get on the field and put points on the board. And that was the beginning of, of Dittus Communications. You mentioned a number of things that I think are important to drill down on. You talked about mentorship. You talked about relationships. The people who helped you wouldn't have helped you had you not had strong relationships with them. How do you think about building relationships and how do you teach young people who are working for you how to build those relationships? There's a lot of discussion about mentorship. I want you to be my mentor. You know, mentorship's great, but how do you make it translate into an actual relationship where mm-hmm. someone really goes to bat for you? Mm-hmm. Well, a, a lot of that's built on trust um, and built on work ethic. And the people that I have mentored and the, the the folks who have worked for me over the years who have gone on to really phenomenal successes, as I watch them work for the company, they always put the company first. They always put their client first, and they always put their the company first. And when I saw people, when I see people who are putting their client first, who when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they think about is, how can I make a difference for my client today? Or how can I make a difference for my company today? Those are the kind of people that I want to take under my wing and help guide them, as opposed to the ones who wake up and think, you know, what can I get out of this for me today? And I, I can't tell you how many young folks who have worked for me over the years have gone on to great things. So let's backtrack a bit. You talked about, you know, your business started very fortuitously, right? As you, you took on a client and that ultimately became the foundation from which you built a business. But obviously, there's a lot that went into building that business beyond just deciding on the name of the company and signing your first client. So talk about how you built that first business. What went into that? What were the biggest challenges that you faced? I think the first big challenge was when I got to the point and I knew I had a, I had a lot of young folks working for me, maybe six or seven. Um, And I knew that I was not going to be able to scale and to make it that, make that next growth step if I didn't have another me. So it was 
it was having the confidence to hire someone, pay them more money than I was actually paying myself, um, and bring bring in a peer and trust that peer, um, you know, with 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 really everything. Um, that person that I brought in helped me grow Story Partners and is with me today. So we've worked together for over 25 years. And I really don't think I could have done either one of those, um, built either one of the companies with, without her help. We used to call it two chicks in a phone booth. And, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, when we built Dittus, um before we sold it, we were had 60 full-time employees. We did a little over $20 million in revenues. And it was... Um, had become quite a major concern in D.C. Um, but that was the first step, was really knowing when to bring in that those senior people and take money from the firm and not put it in my pocket, but invest it back in the firm um, and, and to use those resources to help, help grow and develop the firm. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know that we were doing things the right way. We just really followed our gut on what we thought was the right thing to do. And um, about 15, you know, 10 years into it, we actually took a course from a Harvard professor on um, managing a, a, a professional services firm. And we walked in and the CEO of Ketchum was there and the CEO of Burson was there and the, you know, CEO from Ogilvy was there. Big and, time. And, and they were asking a lot of questions about what they should do. And Deb and I ha- already had those answers because we were doing it. And it gave us the confidence to know that we could, you know, not only were we as good as all the big firms, but we actually, you know, knew a little bit more than they did because we weren't protected by some big brand. You know, we had to get up every day because we didn't drop out of the White House with big names and we didn't, we, you know, we weren't, you know, hadn't worked for some big company and walked out of a major corporate environment with a big reputation we just did it one client at a time and i think that made you know that made a big difference for us yeah you you touched on several things <clears throat> one was the confidence to know that you needed both to know that you needed help and to know who you needed to hire i want to talk about where the confidence comes from but i also want to talk about how did you know who to hire how did you know that Deb was the right person? What qualities were you looking for in that other person to really help complement what you were doing? At the time, I didn't know what I was looking for because I hadn't hired someone. And I actually almost made a big mistake and hired someone else. Um, and who, this was very early very on. Very early on. But I knew I, I knew I had done the right thing when um, that Christmas... Uh, I went to give bonuses, and Deb had worked for me for maybe eight or nine months, not quite a year. And I gave Deb, at the time, which was a big bonus for me, I gave her a $10,000 bonus. And and the check never cleared. And after <laughs> after a month, the check never cleared. I went into her office, and I said, you know, that check never cleared. And she said, well, I told you when you handed it to me I hadn't done anything to deserve a bonus yet. You know, I just didn't cash it. And I said, well, you have to cash it. And she said, well, you know, I'll cash it once I feel like I've actually contributed something, but I haven't done it yet. And the woman never cashed the check. And so I knew I had made the right choice about her because 
it was all about the company. And she was like, there's so much more we can do with that $10,000 and give me a bonus. So she's always put the company first and she's always put, um, you know, employees who are really delivering. She's always put them first. And, you know, having experienced that early, I've kind of kept that with us throughout the entire journey. You know, I'm not sure what role gender plays in that the story that you just told me, but if she had been a man, do you think her actions might have been different? Hard to say. I mean, I've certainly had a lot of, you know, certainly worked with a lot of men. I, I would guess that that man would have cashed that check right away. That's my guess, too. Um, and uh, <laughs> Nothing uh, against men, no, but I, I just think her whole mindset behind yeah. how she thought about being invested in it and you know, the collaboration that the two of you clearly had from a ver- from a very early point is very telling. I do think that that collaborative effort um, speaks volumes about how we've built the firms. And we had a lot of young women work for us during the years that did us. And I've had so many of them leave and go to work at other places, whether they went to work for a client. Very few of our of our folks that did us ever went to work for another agency. They usually went went inside at Dell, went inside at Microsoft. When you know they usually went inside to another uh, an, uh, one of our corporate clients or or nonprofit clients. But what happened is many years later, many of them would come up to us and say, "We." Yeah, I didn't know how good I had it at Didis. I didn't realize when we were debating what to do for a client at, at the conference table that no one talked over me and people listened to my ideas and whether they were good or not, um, really considered them. And, and if they were halfway good, helped us mold and create them so they became a better idea and a better step. And they said, we don't, we haven't experienced that in in this corporate world, you know, I, I can offer an idea and a man will grab it at the table and the next thing you know, it becomes their idea. Or we don't have a chance to put our hand up and talk and we don't get those opportunities. Um, so we didn't know what we were creating was a real environment where women felt empowered, felt challenged, felt respected and given opportunities to do things that they might have never been given and took a long while for them to go inside a corporate environment and actually actually achieve that. And I think we just did it because it was it felt like the right thing to do. And we were very instinctive in our management. Um, and I do think that that is a, is a feminine quality. I think a lot of women have great instincts and Every time I've gone with my instincts or every time I've gone against my instincts, that's when I've stubbed my toe and stumbled. And I, I think we just in, instinctually tried to, it was instinctive leadership. And I, I do think that's a feminine quality. But it also has meant that you are able to create and maintain a particular culture, right? A particular environment in which folks are able to contribute in a very collaborative fashion. How much does gender play a role in the way that you've thought about the creation of culture? It's never intentionally played a role. We don't do it because it's the way women do it. We just do it because it feels like the right way for us, right? Now, if we were in a different environment, my instincts might be dictating something else. But this environment has worked well for us. And I didn't have women role models. I had mostly male role models. 
I had mostly male mentors. So I learned, I learned and watched from them and learned and watched how they operated within a, you know, with, within a, a, an environment. That being said, I do think that I brought some of my instinctive leadership to the table, which they probably didn't have. And so it made for a really good team because when you're trying to, you know, put a team together, you, you try to, you don't put a team of all, you know, everyone that's alike, you know, on the team, you pull people in that have different strengths. So when we were building Dittas and as we've built story, we've tried to identify the part of us that we don't have and put those people in play in our firm. What is it about your personality? What traits have enabled you to be successful? Well, I think the persistence and never give up mentality is one of my hallmarks because um, I won't go to sleep at night until I know that I've done everything I can on behalf of a client, a friend, a family member. Uh, You know, it just doesn't sit well with me. So I'm not the girl that leaves things undone. And I try to, I, I try to make a difference. And in the morning, when I wake up, I literally do think, as I'm putting my makeup on or brushing my hair, what can I do to make a difference today? I do that whether it's in my business or whether it's in my philanthropy or whether it's in, you know, my mentorship. How am I going to make a difference for the person that's tapped me today um, and, and wants me to help make a difference for them? So I think, I think, you know, wanting to make that difference and not sleeping until you have really I think that makes a difference. So where do you think that that particular mindset and approach, where do you think that comes from? What about your background makes you think about persistence in that way? Um, well, it's a healthy fear of failure. Um, and I actually have thought about writing a book and interviewing you know, people who have been people who have been wildly successful uh, and, and asking them why because former Senator John Bro said he was always scared they were going to, he was just a boy from the bayou and they were going to send him back. Imposter and, syndrome, and, right? Imposter <laughs> syndrome. And my mother passed when I, uh, when I was young. I was in my late 20s. And she, she was a single mom who had raised me. We were on food stamps. But she was focused on making sure that I could be the best that I could be. And when she when she passed in the late 80s, she was only making a little over $15,000 a year in a salary. And my uncle came to me and said, you know, your mom's left you a big inheritance. And I was like, no, no, she hasn't. She, He was like, well, she has. She was paying on this insurance policy. Uh, and she oftentimes went without so she could pay on this insurance policy. And so I go through her papers and lo and behold there was an insurance policy that left me two hundred thousand dollars which you know was quite a big sum for her to have figured out how to how to get and I took that money and I started Dittus communications with that money and I was determined I was never gonna let her down and that that that, that that investment of that money into a company was gonna was gonna be successful, and then uh, you couple that with my mentor who placed faith in me, and I didn't ever want to let him down. And then you look at the times, you know, at Didis where we had stumbles with the economy, and you know, nine eleven happened, and 
public relations money dried up and we never laid anybody off. You know, we, I was not going to let our employees down. I was not going to let our clients down who really invested, you know, invested with us to help them solve big problems. And I wasn't going to have someone go and say, oh my gosh, I counted on Gloria and her team to help me and it just didn't help us. So I was never going to let my mom's investment down. We built the company in honor of her. I was never going to let my mentor down who gave me my, you know, first client, you know, first client. Um, My first three clients were friends. I was never going to let them down. And then once you have employees and they're raising their families and they're paying their rent and, you know, they're they're building their life around it, I was never going to let them down. And when I sold the company to the company that bought us, I was never going to let them down. I wanted it to be a good investment for them so they could walk away and say, oh, my gosh, that was well worth the investment that we made. So it's honoring the people who've invested time, money, you know, effort in you um, and relied on you. And I think that that's just, you know, that's just a healthy fear of failure because you don't want to let anyone down. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about transitions. The selling of your first business, your very successful business, that was a big transition. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you decide to do that? And then how did you decide to then build another business after that? Yeah, um, we didn't build Didas to, to sell it, actually you know, we knew that people would be coming and knocking on the door. And we said to each other often, if we build a great company and people want to come buy it and they offer us something, we could consider it. But if they don't, it's a great company and we could go on and do it forever. Um, So the reason we decided to sell was because they made us an offer that it would just have been stupid not to not to have taken it. And um, it wasn't like we wanted to, to sell and exit. Um, but but after we sold, we got involved in a, a large multinational holding company. And, and that particular model wasn't didn't sit right with me for the long run. So when I did decide to exit the company, I went down to Florida to my house in Florida and got on the beach and my phone would ring and it would be a client, you know, where are you? Are you really going to stay on the beach forever? Or I'd have employees <laughs> call and say, I really don't like where I'm working now. Where, you know, are you going to start a new firm? And after, after about seven or eight months of those calls and um, I had one client fly down and, you know, hang out on the beach with me and talk to me about what I consider doing a little just one-on-one consulting with them. And, um, that's I, how the first business that, started, <laughs> you know, and, and, and what I found was I'm in the business that I should be in because I love to tell people what to do when they come and they ask me what they should do. And I'm not shy about telling them and people actually pay me to do that, um, which is amazing to me because I do love, I love my business and I'm, I'm good at helping people navigate, navigate a crisis, navigate a challenging, you know, situation. And, you know, so I sort of flunked retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I had a uh, Southern company, which was my first client at Didis. 
you know, knocked on my door and said, look, you know, we need, we need you. We're, you know, we'll give you a contract because we value what you bring to the table. Um, and after a few of those calls, um, I just decided that we needed to sort of reconvene and we started Story Partners. And a couple of years after that, Deb Cabral, who, you know, had helped me build Didis, came back into the fold. And then several of our other senior people, we all sort of gathered back up and we've got Story Partners again. And here we are. Fantastic. So... How do you think about this, what can be for many businesses, many consulting and professional services businesses, how do you think about client selection? That can be a tricky topic for a lot of businesses, especially when you're first starting out. Mm -hmm. Which types of clients do you want to align your brand with? How do you think about this question? Well, we've always represented corporations and, and nonprofits. So when we select to work with clients, it's important to us that clients are very authentic and very transparent and and are not are not are not obfuscating or hiding the truth. I think that that makes a really big difference when you go to work for someone and you want to get in the trenches with them because it's got to be someone that you trust um, and you've got to know that they want to do the right thing for the audiences that they that they're impacting. How do you know? Well, you just have to ask a lot of questions. So, you know, we spend a lot of time doing a deep dive with clients at the very beginning. And we ask a lot of questions before we get engaged. And if we get a sense that there's more to the story than they're telling us or that they're sharing, you know, we've walked away. You know, there have been several firms in Washington lately that have worked for foreign governments and those foreign governments have been funneled through some sort of corporate entity. And in the early days of Didis, we were approached by someone and it was a foreign country, but they were going to run it through an airline that happened to be owned by the president's family. It was a big contract for, for a small firm. And when we realized what was going on, we said, no, we're not going to, you know, we actually said, well, we need to file Farah and they said we don't want you to file Farah that's why we've set this that's why we've set up this entity and we said well we're not interested in doing that and so we walked away I think you have to you have to have a a good culture in yourself about what is right and wrong my grandmother used to say talent will take you to the top but only character will keep you there and if you hold on to your character you won't end up going down a wrong path you've been in this business for about 30 years, or uh, more, actually, more, more than 30 years, more than 30 years. <laughs> Technology's changed everything, but what, what's the biggest change that you see in the needs that your clients have today? How have sort of the client challenges, crisis communications challenges, how have they changed from when you first started, if at all? Well, I think what has changed is that everybody's got a microphone now, and when I started, you know, only very big corporations, big nonprofits, elected officials, they're the ones that own the microphone. And with the advent of social media um, and blogs and, um, you know, a 24-hour news cycle where anybody can Twitter out and if they've got enough followers or they say something that's provocative enough or they've got a video or they've, whatever it is that they've, that they're trying to disseminate in the, in the digital arena, can go out very fast. I think that's been the biggest change because no longer 
are the methods of communications controlled by a small, narrow group. They've been penetrated by advocates across the world. A single individual person in a little, small, tiny town in the, in the middle of the West uh, on a farm can have as much influence over an issue if they are smart about how they utilize um, the digital arena to get their message out. And that requires a company to be even more transparent and more authentic and to respond quicker and to, to be truthful and honest in, in, in their approach. And I think that's the biggest change. How do you think about this big topic of mindfulness? There's a lot of discussion about self-awareness and mindfulness. Is that something that you spend much time focusing on? You know, I think I, rather than mindfulness, I think we spend time working on purpose. What is the purpose that we're trying to achieve for our clients? What's the purpose that we're trying to achieve for the company? And we've got a lot of employees, and purpose means a lot, particularly to the millennials that are there. I think we want to work with people whose purpose is closely aligned to what we see as purposeful, closely aligned to, you know, what the millennials who work for us is and they see as their purpose. Um, so I think it's more being cognizant of what you're trying to trying to achieve for both yourself and for your clients and for your employees. I would look at it in terms of purposefulness more than mindfulness, but I think they're very closely akin. Are they directly related to meaning and where meaning comes from, or are they different? I think it's the same thing. I mean, meaning for me, again, is, uh, you know, and it, it was the same when I didn't have story partners in between, sort of did the did us in the story world. I wanted to get up every day and know that I had made a difference in something. So um, in those couple of years where I was taking a, a bit of a break, I spent time going around the world teaching leadership training, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in India, and then realized that we needed that same kind of leadership training here in the United States. So I spent about a year putting that program together in, in the U.S. for the North American Leadership Academy. It's not something that I did for pay. It's actually something that I wrote a lot of checks to support. And um, I got to meet great entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs from around the world, and, and I'm still mentoring them today. So that that was very meaningful to me, and there was a purpose that I had in doing that. I was trying to help equip young entrepreneurs with the types of things that I had learned in my years of building my business and be, you know, enable them to have those skills and talents um, that it took me a long time to learn and I learned on my own. And that was very meaningful and gave me purpose over those few years. Who or what inspires you? I get inspired by youth. I get inspired by that next group that's coming up and people who are, want to build something and have that entrepreneurial spirit. I get inspired by people who don't see barriers. Um, I get inspired by people who look and see a big horizon and know that there, that there are things that they can do on that horizon. They may not know their path, um, but they are seeking they're seeking something. And if I can help them in that journey, that is very inspirational to me. Okay, we ask 
every guest who comes on this program for their favorite piece of advice or life hack, something that well, here either... Here we go. Hello, baby. <laughs> this is Glorious Puppy. Um, that, that favorite piece of advice or life hack, it can be something that you live by, could be something we've already talked about, or something that you share regularly with other people, your sort of North Star. What is that piece of advice or life hack? Well, I said it earlier. It's what my grandmother told me. Talent will take you to the top, but only character will keep you there. Um, I think it's, I think as you, as you move through life, there are a lot of temptations that get thrown in front of you. There, there are a lot of temptations get, uh, get thrown in front of you from a, a moral perspective, a cultural perspective. You can take a little shortcut. It's not going to hurt that much. You know, all those things add up because you can get distracted, uh, particularly when you become very successful and you see it happen all the time. People who don't think the rules apply to them. You can look at Martha Stewart. The rules didn't apply to her. You can look at some other people who go down the wrong path because they don't think that you know, they, they just think that they're above, they're just a little bit different and they're above it all. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a small town in Georgia and, you know, your reputation was your, it was all you had. We didn't have any money. There were no shortcuts. When you start going down another path and you impinge your character, you don't know where that will take you. And I've, I've seen a lot of great, smart people over the years go down a path that ended up being destructive. And they probably didn't have that in them at the beginning. And they just, you know, made one little step across the line that was that was too much. So I try to tell young folks who work for me or who, I've, who I'm mentoring over the years, don't ever take a shortcut. And if you feel in your gut that something's not quite right, if that client's not quite right, if they're not quite telling the truth, if, if a business deal seems just too good to be true and it doesn't feel good in your gut, it probably isn't. And if it's keeping you up at night and you're worried about, did you do the wrong thing? You probably did. Don't let that fester, but get back on the right path as quickly as possible and try to make good decisions. So that's kept me walking down the right road all these years when I've seen a lot of people that have taken a, a, a bad detour. What about legacy? You know, I think my legacy, I mean, I would hope my legacy is that I helped launch some great careers and that I helped provide opportunities for people that they that they wouldn't have had. So far, I think I've done that, you know, knock on wood. Um, and I'm proud of all the people that I've helped along the way. Um, with what they've chosen to do with the li- their life and the contributions that they've, that they've made. So th- I think that's the best legacy that you could ever want is to know that you made a difference in somebody's life and help them achieve their goals and their dreams. Yeah. Gloria, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Laura. I'm so glad you're doing this program, and I, I hope that your listeners get a lot out of the the people that you've interviewed. And thank you so much for honoring me and including me in it. Thank you. We loved having you. It's always great to visit with you. You can learn more about Gloria on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you will find additional information and some great photos. And if you're enjoying 
She Said, She Said, please let us know. Tell your friends and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Most of all, thanks for listening.